beginning of verse 14 of this diminutive dispatch, this little letter from Jude. It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Father, uh, I ask for conviction among us this morning. You'll convict our hearts and our minds of the truth. You will teach us, Lord. These are interesting verses, Father. Mysterious to some, uh, perhaps new to others. But Lord, we just pray that you will bring understanding as we continue in this letter, pouring over its importance, its significance, not just in the first century, but especially here in these last days. So I ask that you will give us revelation today, understanding of what's being said here of this ancient prophecy and its application. And I pray at the same time that our hearts will overflow with the love of God in Christ Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you be our rabbi this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 29, that immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds and from one end of the sky to the other. More than one-fifth of all the verses in the Bible are prophecy. There's no other book like that. In addition, one out of every 30 verses in the Scripture talks about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Seven out of ten chapters in the Bible relate to the end times. And the Hebrew prophets spoke more about Messiah's second coming than they did about His first coming. In fact, for every one prophecy about the first coming of Jesus Christ, there are eight about His second coming. That's stunning. Especially in light of the fact that the vast majority of Christians can tell you many things about the first coming of Jesus Christ. The star over Bethlehem. You know, the manger and the shepherds, the wise men, the swaddling clothes. We know that story backward and forward. We celebrate that. We share about it. We talk about it. And yet, a much smaller percentage of Christians know much at all about the second coming of Jesus. That's an interesting test just to do on your own. Can you, can you write out more things about the first than the second coming? Or, or is it for you, like it is in the Scripture, a one to eight ratio? For every one thing you know about the first coming, do you know eight about the second? Because <laughs> that's what the Bible teaches. And this is where I think in, in teaching the Word, especially in this generation, we have focused so much on the past and so much on the heritage, we have forgotten about where we're going. There is a future plan that has always been in place. In fact, it was laid in from day one that God wanted us to know and to look forward to and to be prepared for. 
Now, if you happen to be one of those who you can tell eight things about His first coming for every one that you know about His second coming, that's okay. Clear your Sunday and Wednesday calendar because next week we start the Revelation. The Revelation of Jesus Christ. And we will be in it for several months My goal is to be in the book of Revelation, teaching the book of Revelation until Jesus comes. So then we can just go. D.L. Moody said this. He said, Paul's epistles speak more about the return of the Lord, or speak about the return of the Lord 50 times. Yet the church has very little to say about it. That's interesting. D.L. Moody wrote that back in the mid-1860s. He said, now I see a reason for this. The devil does not want us to see the truth. For nothing would wake up the church so much. For the moment a man takes hold of the truth that Jesus is coming again to receive his followers to himself, the world loses its hold on him. The church is is cold and formal. Again, this is Moody talking and he says, may God wake it up. I know of no better way to wake it up than to get the church to look for the return of Jesus Christ. There is nothing more stirring to the heart of a follower of Jesus than the remembrance of His coming, than the focus on and the expectation of His soon return. It will be the most mind-blowing, heart-shaking, earth-shattering moment in all of history, and it is yet before us, and it is not far off talking to some friends this morning and realized that it has been 13 years since I taught through Revelation the last time. We went through it Sunday nights in 2005. 13 years! That just blows my mind. I thought it was, you know, last year. Or maybe a couple of years ago. You know how much has changed in this world in just 13 years? I think about what's changed in my life, how radically different my life is now from what it was then. And I also hear Paul's words saying, hey, for now, salvation is much nearer than when we first believed. I warn you, I was passionate about teaching through Revelation 13 years ago. Buckle up. Because we are on the verge of what God is going to do. Not only for our fellowship, and I believe that as well. I believe that He has been preparing the bridge to receive the lost in a harvest like we have never seen. That is my hope and my prayer. It is ongoing. I hope that's yours too. But in addition to that, the coming of Jesus Christ. We're on the verge. I've told you many times, nothing has to happen. Prophetically, as far as the Word of God is concerned, every prophecy that must be fulfilled has been fulfilled before Jesus can come again. So we're just waiting. We're in overtime. The prophecy here is remarkable. And my question for you this morning is, are you awake? Are you ready? See, Jude's letter is an alarm clock. It's going off. It can even be to the point of obnoxious, trying to get our attention, but some keep hitting the snooze button. We'll deal with that later. We'll deal with that later. We'll deal with that later. Others bury their heads in the pillow of denial. Still others, how they turn their backs to Jesus, going back to sleep. Some, actually, especially when it comes to the return of Jesus Christ, would lull other people to sleep. 
Oh, don't talk about that. Don't worry about that. Don't think about that. We don't know how it's going to happen. Yeah, we know it's going to happen somehow, some way. You know, I'm, I'm for Jesus coming, but I don't know how. We're not going to get into all that because it's just too difficult to understand. That's a lie. And that is the lie of these men. These men, the men that Jude is referring to throughout the letter, warning against, we see them. These are the ones, even within the church, who would just tell you, roll over and go back to sleep. You don't need to get up yet. These men. Verse 14 says it was about these men that Enoch prophesied. These men. Who are these men? Well, they're in the church, but they are not in Christ. And that shouldn't surprise you. And it's one of the wake-up calls of the letter of Jude is that we have people in the church of Jesus Christ, but not of Jesus Christ themselves. People for whom it's, well, I was raised that way. That's just my tradition. Sunday we go to church and then we go out to lunch. That's just what we do. People who, who show up because, well, it's social. And I like the social aspect. I like interacting with other people. And, and besides, you know, they, they give me cracker and juice every Sunday. <laughs> Get a snack, you know. There are people who show up. I, I, I pray not in this fellowship, but certainly in the church, but not in Christ. They attend the functions without the faith. They show up for the services, but there's no devotion in the heart. These are what Jude would describe as the phony followers, the religiously rebellious. They look the part, they're dressed for it. But in their hearts they are disciples of defiance and they undermine faith. And according to Jude, their alarming judgment was prophesied about within seven generations of the first man, Adam. Do you understand that when the prophecy that we're looking at this morning was given, Adam was still living. He was alive at the time that Enoch shared the prophecy that we're going to look at. That's how far back we're going. We're talking five and a half thousand years that this prophecy was first spoken. came of a descendant of the line of Seth, the enigmatic Enoch, or Hanukkah. I like saying it that way. kind of helps clear the sinuses. Hanukkah. Enigmatic, mysterious. Why? Well, you'll see why. But listen again to the prophecy itself. It was about these men that Hanok in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. Do you get the point? Ungodly, 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 ungodly. Remember last Sunday I mentioned there are those words sometimes that preachers will use, like ungodly. We hear that and go, eh, it's kind of churchy. Those words that, that almost sound self-righteous to say, are you ungodly? Are you an ungodly sinner? This is important to understand, and I hope we won't skip over this because... Because Jude uses the word ungodly not four times as he does in verse 15. Not five times in the letter, but six times. And six is the number of man in the Bible. What's the point? Well, the point is that ungodliness tends to be a human trait. 
That ungodliness is the cause, the singular source of all the ills, all the wrongs, all the evil of man against man, of humanity in this world. It all comes back to ungodliness. The word ungodly, asebia, the Greek word means living without regard to God. It's that simple. There are so many good people in this world who are living without regard to God. Just dismissing God. He is irrelevant to their life. He's unimportant. It's living with literally a, a want of the fear or reverence of the Lord. Sweet people, caring people, philanthropic people who will do... Anything for you, give you the shirt off their back, but living without reference to God, that is ungodliness. Anyone who says, God's irrelevant to me. Psalm 18, verse 4, David said, The cords of death encompassed me, and the torrents of ungodliness terrified me. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 32, verse 6, For a fool speaks nonsense, and his heart inclines toward wickedness to practice ungodliness. Practicing ungodliness is just doing things that are not of God. Things that he wouldn't join in. Isaiah says, And they speak error against the Lord to keep the hungry person unsatisfied and to withhold drink from the thirsty. You know, I read that and I think about there's so many service organizations in the world. A a big advertisement came up on the screen Friday night. My family, we went to see a movie and, and the advertisement came up on the screen and it was very moving. They showed a a girl, perhaps you've seen this, a girl standing on a stage and a young African-American woman and she's, and everybody's applauding. You hear this applaud in the background. She says, I did not become a doctor. I did not go to college. I did not get an education. I did not live past the age of eight. And all of a sudden you see a little eight-year-old African-American girl standing on a stage and no applause. And then the UN, I think it was the UN World Services, if this got your attention, then you need to put this app on your phone and give to this cause. And I'm looking at the cause and I happen to know for a fact that the particular cause, most of the money that people are going to give to it is not going to get there. That's the real tragedy. You know why I love Compassion International? Because I think it's like 88 cents to the dollar actually gets to the kid. There are so many relief organizations in the world, and I'm telling you this because from a perspective of ungodliness, relief organizations trying to do good things, but without regard to God, most of the money goes to administration. Never gets where it needs to go. Why, after all of our work and all of our effort in this world, why, as Isaiah says, that the hungry person is unsatisfied and they withhold drink from the thirsty? Man, if it's about humanity, why haven't we fixed the problem? Ungodliness. This is about us, not about Him. Romans 1.18, Paul said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Some people hear that and they hear judgment. I hear that and I hear a God who is sick and tired of the eight-year-old not making it to their eighth birthday. A God who loves us so much, He looks at the sin of mankind and says, I will not tolerate this. 
That's why the wrath of God is poured out. That's why judgment will be executed against the ungodly. Because ungodliness equates to suffering and sorrow and hunger and death and pain. And I just wanted you to get a sense of the seriousness of this. Jude is now going to explain in verse 15, using this word over and over, four times he uses the word, but he uses it three ways. He's a good pastor. You know the the typical thing of preachers and and what preachers are are, uh, often accused of is you speak everything in threes. I found myself doing it in the car driving down the road. You know what? You want Wendy's, McDonald's, or KFC? You know it's 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 always threes. It's triads. And Jude does speak in triads. In fact, in the twenty-five verses of this letter, he will use triads fourteen times. Trying to get the point across. Trying to be clear. He does it right in the very first verse. If you note this, he says, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. There's your first triad. The second one's in verse 2. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. What a great preacher. I mean, that's the way you do it, right? Three things all together. If you look further down, verse 5, 6, and 7 is another triad as it refers to unbelieving Israel, fallen angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah. There's another triad. And he does it throughout the letter. Well, he does it one more time. In fact, verse 15 is the ninth triad in this letter. As Jude is quoting Enoch, warning that he saw the Lord coming to execute judgment. Here it is in three ways. Number one, to an ungodly world. If you're a note taker, jot that down. An ungodly world. He says the Lord will execute judgment upon all to convict all the ungodly. That is an ungodly world. And what Jude is explaining here is that while some may slip in the side door of the church and bring heresy and bring false teaching and lull others to sleep, no one's going to slip out the back, Jack, when Jesus comes. This whole world will be judged. All ungodliness will be judged. And, by the way, the ungodly judged at that time will stand convicted. That is, they're going to know They're going to know why. They're going to understand the justice of it and the fairness. They will finally see what they have tried to deceive themselves of throughout life. The fairness and the validity of the judgment that is on them. And by the way, that's reason number one, and I'm not giving this as a triad, but that's that's the primary, that's the first thing Jesus does upon His return. If you wanted to make a list of why does Jesus come back to the earth, number one on the list, the very first thing would be judgment in His second coming. For those who say, I like Jesus, I just don't like the God of the Old Testament. Well, Jesus, the God of the New Testament, is coming back and and He's the same God. And He comes to judge. And you know what? Every single one of us, believers and non-believers alike, we want justice. We want Him to come make things right. We don't like... Man, the Kavanaugh hearings. It's making me sick. It is absolutely making me sick. Because, And, and I'm, not, I'm not making any statement here, politically. I'm really not. What I'm saying is I am sick and tired of Washington, D.C. And if that's political, well then, okay. But the he said, she said, the lies and the use of, of people's pain and, and, and slamming people. We have two people now who are elevated, who are all over the news, and both of their lives are marked forever. That's not fair. That's not right. 
It shouldn't be that way. And it keeps happening over and over and over. Why? Ungodliness. Because people are living without regard to God. I think our government, for the most part, is living without regard to God. What a difference it would make if they would turn around. Okay, I'm a little off, but he's coming to judge an ungodly world. Jesus used Isaiah 61 to describe His first coming. And it's beautiful. Listen to this. Isaiah 61, verse 1. He said, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That's this year, by the way. That is this season of the world. We're in the favorable year of the Lord. The age of grace. The time where God says, all you have to do is believe in me. And I'm going to save you. Trust in me. And I will forgive you of all ungodliness. And bring you to my side. Just just trust me, he says. So we're in this age. And Jesus claimed this of himself. He quoted Isaiah 61 in this synagogue in Nazareth. Remember, he opens up the scroll and he reads it. Closes it up, hands it back to the attendant, sits down, and all the eyes of the synagogue are on Jesus. <laughs> and he says, Today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I'm here. And that began his ministry. Well, that, and then they tried to run him out of town on a rail and throw him off the cliff of Nazareth. And he walked right through them. Here's the point Jesus, as many of you know, stopped mid verse. Isaiah 61, verse 2, he stops after saying, I have been sent, I am here, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That's his first coming. How about his second? Second half of the verse, and the day of vengeance of our God. He is coming to execute judgment on all ungodliness, on an ungodly world. Secondly, for their ungodly works. Note that, he says, ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way. That's ungodly works, but there's two aspects of those deeds. It's not only the deeds, but it's how they're done. It's not only the manner, it's the motive. It's not only the action, it's the intention. God's Word divides that way. In fact, Hebrews 4.12 tells us the Word of God is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It's motives, man. It's not just the behaviors, but it's what's behind the behaviors. As Jesus said, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And those defile the man. And only God is able to judge motives. That's one thing no courtroom in the entire world has ever been able to do. What's the real motive here? We like to look for motives. What's the real intention here? God knows exactly. And we'll judge that, judging an ungodly world for ungodly works. And, number three, note this, ungodly words. He says, of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. So much in the history of this world has been said against God that has been forgotten. We're real good at that. You know, speaking things out. Stating things. And then we forget and move on in our life. And I think there's going to be a long line at the great throne judgment of people going, what did I ever say against you? Well, right now, you just said something again. You know, 
Well, what do you mean I said this? Well, well here's the ledger. Here's the example. Here, here, here's, what, here's what you said. There's going to be a lot of remembering on that day. Jesus said in Matthew 12.36, and this should really shake us, He says, I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. And as a child, that one scared me. Because I knew there were things that I should not have ever said that I had said. I have to give an account for that? I have to own up to that? Hey, listen, good news. The day of judgment is for those who choose to be judged based on their ungodly deeds and ungodly words. If you want to be judged that way, you can be. That's your choice. Well, how can I not be? Trust in Jesus Christ. Give your life to Jesus now, and that judgment does not apply. And all the things that were said, and all the things that were done, and all the failures and sin of my life, washed away, forgiven, forgotten, gone, as far as the east is from the west. I am clean before God, and that judgment does not apply. I will not give an accounting for those words. Why? Because Jesus did on the cross. And His blood washed away every one. By the way, speaking of ungodly words, there's a poster child for this. One who is yet to come at the apex of all human rebellion. The Antichrist Himself. As we will see and discover in Revelation, but I'll read this to you now. Revelation 13, verse 5, There was given to him a mouth, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, those who dwell in heaven. This guy, Antichrist, is going to have a mouth on him. And he's going to use these words. And he will use them to blaspheme God. And he will use them. You know what the worst thing is about ungodly words? Is they are so often used for deception. And I remind you that ungodliness is want of of reverence for God. It is a lack of holy fear. You could say ungodliness is fearing man more than fearing God. More concerned about what the world thinks than what the Lord thinks. Sometimes we even do that in the church. We're more concerned about the culture and how it views us than how the Lord views us, what He desires of us, how He wants us to be, because we're looking at the world. Ungodly words are used to lure, or as I said earlier, to lull back to sleep. Well, so how are we supposed to live godly? And this is another word that, that needs understanding. To live godly is not to be, you know, in a suit and a tie everywhere you go. Suits and ties are fine. I have no problem with suits and ties. On me I do, but on anyone else they're fine. But to be all uptight and religious and serious and sober constantly and not that sobriety isn't a good thing either. I've got to be careful here what I'm saying. I remember... Hearing preachers say you've got to be godly. And it just didn't sound appealing. It didn't sound fun. To be honest. You've got to be godly. In other words, you know, a, a wet blanket. No. No. There is no more joyful place to be than to be godly. There is no greater peace than when you are godly. That is, you're living your life with reference to God. You're doing things that please Him. You're living in thanksgiving to Him. 
No greater joy than to be godly. No more peaceful, no more satisfying way to live than in godliness. It is ungodliness that is not satisfying. It is ungodliness that is sorrowful and painful. It is ungodliness that is fearful and anxious. But godliness? Oh, that's the place to be. And when Titus, when, when Paul writes to Titus in 2 verse 11, he says, the grace of God has appeared. Woohoo! Bringing salvation to all men. Yes, here it is. Here's the offer. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Live godly. And this is why the prophetic warning of Enoch came so very early in the history of the world. God is not a parent who at the very last minute surprises us with extreme discipline for something we didn't even know was the wrong thing to do. We didn't understand. That would not be fair. That's not loving. That's not God. So early on he brings this prophecy. Through this man, Hanok, it was about these men, that is ungodly men, that Hanok in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied. Okay, hang on a second. Let's look at Enoch for a minute. In the seventh generation from Adam, or literally the seventh from Adam. So generationally, follow it down the line. You start with Adam, you end up seven sons down the line, and you're at Enoch. And as I said to you, Adam was still alive when Enoch was alive. Enoch would have known Adam personally, which is fascinating to me when you look at those things and see who was alive at the same time there. Hanok's name, Enoch, means dedicated. It's also translated to train up. In fact, the root word hanok is an actual word in the Hebrew, not just a name, and it it is used to train up. As in Proverbs 22, verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Hanok, a child. Enoch, a child, in the way he should go. So train up, dedicate. Enoch himself was so dedicated... That not only was he trained up in the way he should go, he just kept going. He went right up. Enoch was the first man raptured. Keep your finger here in Jude and go all the way back to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis 5. And if you're having trouble finding it, it's generally right after the table of contents. Genesis chapter 5, where we learn this. Now, I use the word rapture. The word rapture used to rankle me. I'd hear and go, ah, okay, yeah, I know who you're talking about. You're talking about that, that fringe element out there, those left behind people who aren't left behind. They think the rest of the world is. You know? And, and I, I just, I didn't buy it. Then I met Enoch. I mean, not personally, but I began to study and read and discover Enoch. And so we have, in the seventh generation from Adam, an example of a raptured individual. Watch this. Verse 18 of Genesis 5. Jared lived 162 years and became the father of Enoch. Verse 21. Enoch lived 65 years and he became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah and he had other sons and daughters. 
Verse 23, so all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. I just love that verse. That is one of the coolest verses in the Bible. Enoch walked with God. They're hanging out. They're having such a good day. Walking along. It's late afternoon, perhaps. And Enoch says, you know, we're, we're so far from my house. And God says, yeah, mine's right up the way. And off they go. Enoch did not die. He just went home. He was caught up, if you will. The word rapture just means caught up. And he went home to be with the Lord. With the exception of Elijah, the prophet, Enoch is the only man in history who did not die. That's remarkable. Others died and were raised. Even Jesus was dead and is now living. In fact, Jesus died and rose to be the first fruits of those who would rise from the dead. Never to die again. But Enoch and Elijah, these two guys, they got off scot-free. They skirted past death to just go right on into eternity. And because of that, there are those who say, well, then Enoch must die. Enoch must die. Because Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. So you have to die before there's judgment. And because of this, little sneak preview into Revelation again, Revelation 11 talks about two witnesses. Two witnesses who will show up in the time of the tribulation. They will preach out of Jerusalem. The story is fantastic. It's amazing. There's a lot of graphic detail about these two witnesses, but no names are given. And there are those who think it's got to be Elijah and Enoch. Because they're the only two men who didn't die. Some of you know my opinion on that. The correct opinion, I think. But it's mine. And that is Elijah and Moses. And I'll explain why I'm absolutely convinced of that when we get to Revelation 11. But what about this Enoch thing? I mean, yeah, he didn't die, Elijah didn't die, and if everybody has to die, then they've got to be here so that they can die because we know the two witnesses in Revelation 11 are killed. So there you go. Elijah and Enoch got to pay their dues like everybody else. Hang on a second. For those who think that that that, that is a... Uh, Hebrews 9.27 is an absolute that you have to die before judgment, please understand the Bible teaches that there is an entire generation of believers in Jesus Christ who will never die, but will be caught up. They will be raptured. So it's not just Enoch and it's not just Elijah. Oh, they're a picture of what's coming, but there will be an entire group of people who happen to be alive at the time that Jesus calls His church home, and those will never die. I've already put my name in you know, to be part of that group. And I'm praying for it and hoping for that. And even if I die, so I die, hey, the dead in Christ will rise first. So it's totally fair, right? First Thessalonians 4.16 says, The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together. Caught up. Harpazo. Raptus. Raptured. 
We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. The rapture of the church. I've taught about this for 15 years. We have talked about it over and over and over. I am absolutely certain of this theological truth because this is what the Bible teaches. This is what's coming and what will happen. And the day is not far off when the church will be gone. Those who died in Christ, those who are currently alive in Christ, caught up, and those who are alive in Christ at the time will never die. Jesus even said that, you know, in John chapter 11. He's talking to Martha about the death, the recent death of Lazarus, and she's saying, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I believe that, you know, you're coming in the resurrection and, and he'll, he'll be raised in the resurrection. Remember what Jesus says? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And he says, he who believes in me will live and not die. That's not an exact translation, but Jesus makes the comment that there are those who believe in me who will never die. Just like Enoch. Keep that in mind. Where did Jude get this prophecy of Enoch? I mean, we see Enoch here in in Genesis 5, and, and if you were hoping to read the prophecy in Genesis 5, it's not there. As a matter of fact, we don't have a single other prophecy with one exception. We don't have a single other prophecy of Enoch in the Bible except what Jude tells us in Jude 14 and 15. Well, that's interesting. So where did Jude get this? Well, I'll tell you one thing. At the time, Jewish people who read this letter, Christians who were Jews before, they would have gone, oh yeah, yeah, the Enoch prophecy. They knew it. They were familiar with it. Early Christians and rabbis, they knew this prophecy very well. Well, where did Jude get it? He got it from an apocryphal book. You've heard the word apocrypha. On Wednesday we defined that. It means secretive. We call books apocryphal that we're not certain of their origin, or we don't know who the author actually was. The book of Enoch, or Enoch 1, was written in the intertestamental period between the last of the Hebrew prophets... Malachi and and the New Testament being written. And those four to five hundred years in there, that's when the book of Enoch was written. Well, there's a problem right there, because if the book of Enoch was written there, then it can't be the same Enoch from five thousand years, you know, from now, or three thousand years before. Can't be the same guy, can it? The book of Enoch was widely accepted as historically accurate, not inspired scripture. And understand there is a difference. We have lots of great uh, books, supplemental books, encouraging books, confirming books that we read and use today that are not the Bible. Ever read Max Lucado? <laughs> you ever pick up a book in a Christian bookstore and, and read it and you're encouraged by it? It's not Scripture. You know it's not the Bible, but it's got good stuff. It supports what Scripture says. And I can support books like that. There are a lot of books that don't support what Scripture says too, but we're not going to deal with those. The book of Enoch, an apocryphal book. And I believe, and, and, and hear me on this, that there is value to the church reading the book of Enoch. I'm not going to teach through it here on a Sunday. But I would encourage you, pick up a copy of it. Read it. It's, it's fascinating. It's not going to steer you off and in fact, there's a guy named Ken Johnson. He, he has a book out as a paperback called The Ancient Book of Enoch where he has a translation of the book of Enoch and he gives some commentary and it's really good. And it's really encouraging. 
the book of Enoch is confirmational and it is encouraging to the truths of inspired Scripture. You might say, well, I feel weird about reading something like that. Okay, then don't. Stick to the Bible, trust the Bible. But what's interesting is the quote that Jude gives us from the book of Enoch doesn't tell us anything that Scripture hasn't already told us. It just confirms it. It supports it. Yeah, but people struggle with this one. Yeah, but if there's a a verse in the Bible taken from somewhere else that is not inspired, is that verse not inspired? Well, of course it's inspired. It's in the Bible. And if that's simple-minded for you, well, the Holy Spirit inspired Jude to write the letter, and Jude included this quote. Paul does the same thing. He quotes different places. He quotes some Greek philosophers as part of inspired Scripture. And it's in the Word of God. I think the book of Enoch is of some value to us, and I'm not alone, by the way, in this. First century Christian leaders and up to the first century Jewish leaders saw great value in and read and studied the book of Enoch. The ancient rabbis did. Early Christians. I've mentioned these names so many times, I hope they're getting familiar to you, but guys like Irenaeus. In the first century, he thought the book of Enoch was incredibly valuable to the church. Tertullian considered it, both, in fact, both these guys, Irenaeus and Tertullian, early on considered the book of Enoch to be authentic to Enoch. That yes, he actually wrote this. Again, I'm not saying it should be added into the canon of Scripture, into the Bible. And even those early first century Christians said, yeah, it probably shouldn't be added in there because there are some questions here and there, but there is some authenticity here that we need to recognize. So how did they get it? I mean, if if you're telling me that someone wrote it down, though, so long, 3,000, 3,500 years after Enoch, how, how do we know that it's of Enoch or from Enoch? Good question. Tertullian said that the book of Enoch's prophecies were preserved by Noah in the ark. That Enoch wrote them down and actually passed them along and they got to Noah who saved them in the ark and were kept through the flood. As the story goes, and this comes from Ken Johnson's uh, his writing on the ancient book of Enoch, Noah then passed Enoch's book on to Shem who preserved it in the city of Salem, Jerusalem. Eventually it was passed down to the tribe of Levi for safekeeping. And it was preserved until the time it was buried, note this, buried along with other ancient texts to be found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. So this book goes at least as far back as the Dead Sea Scrolls and was discovered among those scrolls, the book of Enoch. That's compelling. Now again, not compelling enough, I think, to be added into Holy Scripture. But I have no problem with Jude quoting this prophecy and this prophecy being absolutely authentic out of the book of Enoch. It supports biblical truth. It reaffirms biblical truth. As I said before, it doesn't tell us anything the Bible hasn't already said about the second coming of Jesus, but it does give us a strikingly early date for this prophecy. To realize that in the seventh generation from Adam, this prophecy was already spoken. This warning, not about the first coming, but about the second coming of Jesus. Why don't we read the first or the book of Enoch today? Why why haven't you heard a whole lot about it? Well, because by around 700 A.D., the book of Enoch was all but forgotten by the church, by the Roman church. In fact, a lot of books were forgotten by the Roman church 
As a matter of fact, by 7800 AD, even the Bible itself was being chained to the pulpit and only shared by the priests. So the churches were only getting what the priest wanted to give, rather than able to read and study the Word of God for themselves. So a lot of books were set aside and ignored and let go at that time. And yet the Bible declares Enoch a legitimate prophet. From Genesis chapter 5 to Jude 14 and 15 to Luke chapter 3 verse 37 where we see Enoch in the lineage of Jesus Christ. To Hebrews chapter 11 verse 5 where the Hebrew pastor says by faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. For without faith it is impossible to please God. See, Enoch wasn't just this amazing guy. He was just faithful. He just trusted God. He believed in God. And because he believed in God, he was raptured. Same with you. That's what it takes. Putting your trust in Jesus. And so we see this Enoch. Interesting that the Bible confirms his existence, confirms him even as a prophet. Wait, 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 wait. How do we know Enoch was a prophet? I mean, I know what Jude says, but before Jude, how can we trust that this guy Enoch mentioned in Genesis 5 actually was a prophet? Do we have proof by God's standard that Enoch was a prophet? Oh, we have proof. Deuteronomy 18 says, You may say in your heart, Deuteronomy 18 verse 21, How will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? So how do we tell the difference between a true prophet and a false prophet? And God says, When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come true or come about, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Well, great. So what do we do with Enoch when the prophecy we have from him goes all the way to a time yet future, so of course it hasn't been fulfilled. How can we trust him for it? Did he ever prophesy something that we see fulfilled? And the answer is yes. Look back in Genesis again at verse 21 of chapter 5. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. And there it is. There what is. I'm going to throw this out to you. Some of you already know this, but it's just so cool. And if you've never heard this before, you might want to jot this down or, or come back and listen to the, to the teaching and jot it down. Do you know that embedded in Genesis chapter 5 is the gospel of Jesus Christ? The gospel's here. This early, in Genesis 5, all you got to do is take the ten names from Adam to Noah and write the, na- the meaning of the names out in one sentence form and you get the Gospel. Let me prove it to you. Adam means man, verse 3. Seth means appointed. Down in verse 6, Enosh, the next name, means mortal. Down in verse 9, the next name is Kenan, means sorrowful. Down in verse 12, uh, Mahalalel means the blessed God or blessed of God. Uh, number uh, chapter uh, Verse 15, Jared means shall come down. Verse 18, Enoch means dedicated. Verse 21, Methuselah, dying he shall send. Verse 25, Lamech means the despairing. And verse 29 uh, is Noah, which means comfort or rest. If you read it as a sentence, it means man appointed, mortal, sorrowful, the blessed God shall come down, dedicated, 
dying, he shall send the despairing comfort or rest. It's the gospel. Methuselah was named by his father Enoch. Methuselah has a double-pronged uh, meaning to his name, or a double-edged meaning here, a prophecy, if you will. Dying, he shall send. We use it, we see it in the Gospel of Jesus, as in the death of Jesus, he sends comfort to a lost world. But we also see in Methuselah, this interesting name, in his mortality, it will come. Who names their child that? When he dies, it's going to be here. And if you're looking for a name for your baby, I guess go ahead. Methuselah means in his death it will come. Was Enoch a legitimate prophet? Look no further than the naming of his own son. For Methuselah was the longest man to live, clocking in at 969 years. I just turned 54. I don't want to live 969 years in this body. I want to be glorified and then live forever. But there's a reason Methuselah, Methuselah as we call him, why he lived so long. If we track the years from creation, just reading in Genesis chapter 5, we discover from creation to the flood that Methuselah died the year the flood came. In his death it shall come. That that if we look at another historical book that is mentioned in the Bible, Joshua 10.13, 2 Samuel 1.18 mentions a book of Yashar. And in the book of Yashar, it actually tells us that Methuselah died seven days before the flood came. In his death it shall come. Dying he shall send. What are you saying? I'm saying the prophet Enoch prophesied through the very naming of his son the coming of the flood. That that's part of what he was doing in naming Methuselah. He gave him a name of warning, a storm warning, if you will, of the very flood itself. Was Enoch a legitimate prophet? Well, he named his son well. In a prophecy that literally came true, the week Methuselah dies, the flood comes seven days later. So Enoch prophesied that. Do you know what that tells us? The love of God is so great that the flood warnings began 969 years before the flood hit the earth. The flood was not a surprise. The Bible tells us Noah was preaching about it for 120 years while he built the ark. But we see in Methuselah's very name, 969 years before the flood, the warning began. And while I can't prove this, I believe that Enoch is a prophet of God was saying, flood's coming, flood's coming. If we don't turn from ungodliness and become godly, he will destroy this world. I believe Enoch the prophet was sharing this. I know that Noah was for almost a thousand years before it happened. Hey, because the love of God is so great, the storm warning of the judgment of Jesus Christ began five and a half thousand years ago. These things are spoken by God, not because He's a harsh, unloving God who says, if you're ungodly, I'm going to take you out. It's a God who loves so much that He does not want to see that happen to you or to me. So He warns early on, way ahead of time. You and I weren't even born. I was born into a world that had this book. A world where this teaching was available to me so that I could meet and understand and know Jesus Christ and be saved. That's the love of God. And we see it throughout Scripture. Well, quickly, look at the prophecy. 
Back in Jude 14, it was about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment upon all, to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. But this is what thrills me to no end. The Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones. This is what Enoch prophesied. It's what he saw in this apparent vision. When Jesus comes, His holy ones come with Him. Who are the holy ones? Well, perhaps they're angels, some say. The word is hagios. And it's a good word to know. In fact, I think I told you back in verse 3, pay attention to the word hagios. Throughout the Scriptures, we see the word hagios translated one of two ways. Holy ones or saints. It is never by itself used to describe angels unless the word angelos accompanies it. So if you see hagios, angelos together, then he's saying holy angels. But if it's hagios all by itself, it's the saints. It is talking specifically about the holy ones of Jesus Christ. That's you and that's me, those who live in Christ. The saints, the Hagias, the, the holy ones. Jude already clearly uses this word in verse 3 when he says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints, to the Hagias. I ask you, was the faith handed down to angels? No. It was handed down to you. It was handed down to me. Jude uses hagios for saints, for the people of God in verse 3 and also in verse 14. Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones. And that tells us in this marvelous prophecy that to return with Him, we have to have already been with Him. Right? If we're going to come back with Him, we've got to be with Him. We don't come back with Him but we're already here. That makes no sense. The Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones, His saints. When Christ returns, we return with Him. And we return with Him because we will already have been with Him, the raptured church. Caught up. There with Jesus. Man, the saints don't just go marching in. They come marching out. <laughs> And we will follow Him. We will be with Him. Thousands upon thousands, He says, many thousands of His holy ones, and that word is myriads. Myrios in the Greek. Myriads, that is an innumerable multitude returning with Him in His second coming. Having already met Him in the clouds, as Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. We've already met Him. We're with Him. Zechariah the prophet Chapter 14, verse 5 says, Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with Him. Same thing. We, we hear Paul say it in 1 Thessalonians 3.13 that He may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. We come back with Him. We have been caught up to be with Him. We come back with Him. But it... it it's not rubber band theology. You know, it's not that Jesus comes and says, come on out. We go boing, we go up and then we come down. 
you know, bungee jumping theology. I'm going up, I'm going down. You know, that's not that's not it. There's a span of time. In fact, it's beautiful that there is a period in the book of Revelation talked about from chapter 6 to chapter 19. We'll see these things, Lord willing. There's a seven-year period of tribulation on the earth. The church is caught up pre-tribulation. Oh, Rick, you can't teach that as, as absolute. Aren't there different perspectives? Yes, there are different perspectives. There are other ones that are wrong, and then there's the right one. <laughs> Caught up before the tribulation. When we get there in the teaching of Revelation, I will show you why I am absolute on that one. Why I believe that to be the case. Not just because I want it. I will show you biblically. But the church is caught up, and then there's the seven-year tribulation. Guess what? The Jewish wedding was a seven-day honeymoon. That when the bride was ensconced with the groom in the place prepared, as Jesus said in John 14, they would, they would tuck in for seven days. We will be with Jesus during that time. Paul says, re- regarding the ungodly ones who will be judged, they'll pay the penalty of eternal destruction. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day. So there are multiple verses that talk about our returning with Christ. And if you need more confirmation, okay, quickly, turn right to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. If you couldn't find Genesis, you're not going to find Revelation. I know we've looked at this before. We're going to look at it again. And for good reason. Verse 7 of Revelation 19 says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. That is the godly ones, the holy ones, the hagias. You know that? The word saints? The righteous acts of the saints. It's not that we're perfect people. It's that we love Jesus Christ. It's that we live lives with reference to God as opposed to ignoring God. And so the saints are dressed in fine linen, bright and clean. Skip down to verse 11. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on himself which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Of course, that is none other than Jesus Christ. And, verse 14, the armies which are in heaven, clothed in what? Fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Gang, do you see it? The bride in combat boots. Or better yet, wearing silver spurs. The bride mounted up and riding behind Jesus on gleaming white steeds as we trace His contrails through the heavens, following after the King of kings and the Lord of lords, we ride. We come back with Him. And what a fantastic, wonderful ride that's going to be. Amazing. And don't get cocky. Because there are those who say, alright, we're going to ride to war with Jesus. We're going to kick some. Rear ends. We're going to take some people out. I'm going to ride in with my Uzi. Just <laughs> yeah, it's going to be awesome. Ungodly. 
We're going to follow Him, but by the time we get... You can shout Hi-O Silver all you want. And I probably will. (laughs) Hi-O Silver, away! But we follow Him, and according to my understanding and my reading, by the time we set hoof on earth, it's over. There will be one execution of judgment on that day, and it is by the sword of His mouth. The truth of the Word of God. Spoke by Jesus. But we are going to come back with Him. This is not what some wacky pastor in the Northwest has come up with. This is what the Bible teaches. This is what we see in the Scriptures. And I think D.L. Moody was spot on. The way to wake up is to look up. The way... You want the world to lose its grip on you. You struggling with sin. You want to break free. The way you get the world to lose its grip on you is you take hold of the truth of the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is closer now than when we believed. And He is coming soon. Coming to get His bride, and we will meet Him in the clouds, and then we will return with Him. He comes back with His bride, the church. And Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 1, If you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. You've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Listen, if you're discouraged, if you're looking at the political sharpness and and, and anger and, and vitriol in our world, if you're looking at the hunger, if you're looking at the pain, if you're looking at all the ungodliness and it's bumming you out, look up and recognize that Jesus is coming. And that His promise is secure. Because Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 4, When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Amen? Keep looking up. Father, help us to look up. Keep our eyes, Lord, fixed on Jesus Christ. May we be certain, Lord, not so that we can say we're right about a perspective and others are wrong, All kidding aside, may we be certain of your return, for you certainly gave us all teaching we needed to know about it. I pray we would be of those, among those, Lord Jesus, who are focused more on your second coming even than on your first, as your word is, trusting and knowing you are going to be back, and you said soon. And Lord, we recognize all these things to be true. I pray this morning as we, as we sing one more song, Lord, before you, I pray that your Spirit will clear out confusion of any kind. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would push back against even the spirits that would try to lull some back to sleep. That you would allow and, and encourage faith to enter all of our hearts. Father, there are some here who have never given their life to Jesus. Would you bring faith so that they could look to you and say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Lord, there are some here who have been lulled into a Christian sleepiness, not following through on promises they've made to you or on things that you've asked. Holy Spirit, would you move among us? and cause us to respond to You. 
every one of us would you redirect and set our feet on the path of godliness from this day forward until Jesus comes. Thank you, Father, for your word to us. May this fellowship be encouraged in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've never trusted Jesus, don't wait. Don't wait until all this comes down. Trust Him now. If there are things in your life you know that He's called you to and you've never done them, maybe you've never been baptized, you put it off, you thought, well, I'm not sure how necessary that is. Well, Jesus did it. And Jesus said to you, to me, to do it. If you've never been baptized, don't put it off. If there's something else in your life between you and the Lord that needs to just be straightened out, why don't you come? Come forward this morning. We'll pray together. We'll ask Jesus to set your feet on the right path. If there's anything we can do, come forward and pray while we sing together. Let's stand up.